This is the Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The Word to Stand On for Life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Tuesday show. It feels like Monday to me. Feels like Monday still because I wasn't here yesterday. Hope you had a great vacation, a great holiday, and I pray that you're warm because it is not warm around here now. Hi, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your questions. Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your lives, church questions, whatever's on your heart, all you have to do is call 210-340-9585. And because you're not outside doing stuff, you might have opportunity to call. If you are outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And as always, if you are driving in your car on this cold Tuesday, the safest way to do to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Well, we got nothing going on on Tuesday they got to talk about, so let's get right to questions. My first one is a question from Annette. And her question is, who wrote the end of the book of Deuteronomy. Um, Annette, Moses, we know, is the author of Deuteronomy. Um, Jesus gives Moses um, attribution. Uh, it's, it's generally conceded that he is the author of the book. Uh, we know that uh, when he misrepresented God, uh, God refused to allow him to go into the promised land uh, because of his disobedience. That's in Numbers chapter 20. Um, and he died. Uh, Deuteronomy 34 um, talks about how Moses was allowed to view Canaan from afar before he died. And then we say, well, how did he get the rest of the book? Um, because he wrote it, most people believe that Joshua wrote the account of Moses' death. We don't know if that's the case for sure, but that is the prevailing opinion. Uh, there are other theories. Ezra uh, is is often spoken of as the author of Deuteronomy chapter 34. Um, some even say uh, one of the 70 elders or many a combination of the 70 elders who served under Moses, uh, but we don't know for sure, and there's no way we're ever going to really know for sure, but that's the best we can do. So I hope that makes sense to you. There are just some things that we can't know. Here's a question from Nacho from our email inbox. 
Uh, Pastor Ron, in the past I've heard you and other teachers say that the United States is not in the book of Revelation, that it's not specifically mentioned. Uh, Before I go to the rest of the question, it's not only not specifically mentioned, but it's not even pointed at. Uh, Not just in the book of Revelation, but in end times prophecy at all. And then Nacho continues, may I make a point to consider? Revelation 18 is about the fall of the economic system of Babylon. I think we may agree that the United States today is the most influential economic power in the world. I think the U.S. may be that economic system mentioned in Revelation 18. The reason I say this is based upon what you and other Bible teachers also say, and that is that Jesus is coming soon. If that's the case, and then parenthetically wrote, and I pray and hope that that's the case, me too, Nacho. Um, I pray that Jesus is coming soon. Then Babylon has to be the United States since the U.S. is currently the economic power, um, if not the most influential economic power in the world. Um, no matter what's happening in regards to China and uh, United States efforts to become a global, oh, I'm sorry, and its efforts to become a global economic power. To that point, if in Revelation the economic power was China or even some groups that rise up from the Middle East, it would take quite some time, uh, years, for that economic system to build up and have an effect on the world the way that the United States currently does now. The United States still holds sway over the world and the way the world's economic system uh, works. And if Jesus is coming soon, then the U.S. has to be that Babylon economic center. With that said, would you consider that a possibility? No, I wouldn't, Nacho, and here's why. Uh, the, the, the Babylon um, economic system, uh, at the end we see that the religious system of Babylon and the economic system of Babylon just completely fall apart. And it is it is not... Babylon. It's not a specific economic system, but but what it details is the hope of people in money or in the economic system just completely vanishes. So it's not. It, it's speaking symbolically. Babylon is is symbolic. Uh, the religious system, the economic system, uh, and it's all going to come crashing down. And that's all that's. Uh, included now, obviously, if Jesus were to come now, and then the the great tribulation would begin, well, then the the worldwide economic system is going to come collapsing down at the same time. So this isn't about the United States specifically; uh, it is about the economic system in the world at the time of the rapture of the church when the great tribulation begins. Now, let me mention a couple of things, Nacho, for you to consider as well. First. The United States uh, is no longer the prevailing economic power in the world. Um, with our debt service, with uh, our our budget inadequacies, um, believe me, China uh, and perhaps still even Russia is going to have a much greater impact on the end times world. Uh, I hope, and this is all I can do is hope, uh, and, and believe me, this is me being hopeful, although uh, it doesn't appear that it's likely. Um, but the United States, uh, our hope is, is not mentioned in regards to end times prophecy uh, because uh, we're hoping and praying that there'll be a revival in this country. And then, of course, if that were the case, then then so many people would be gone in the rapture of the church uh, that, that the reality is we would, um, that we, we'd cease to be a force to be dealt with. 
So, uh, again, I don't think that's a likely scenario. It looks to me, it appears as though the United States is going farther and farther down the drain uh, in terms of its opposition to God. Uh, We are certainly not supporting Israel at this point, which is, I believe, and this is only my opinion, I believe that our our position uh, in the world was to be Israel's protector. So I think we forfeited any possibility of... of, uh, that happening again. My hope and pray is that the Spirit of God will move. He comes when we expect Him not. We pray that's the case, but I think Second uh, Timothy chapter three and others. I think it is more likely, Nacho, that we just sort of sin our way out of existence. It's always interesting to me that um, Rome was never defeated militarily. Uh, Rome simply sinned itself out of existence, out of relevance, and it appears to me as though the United States of America is doing the same thing. Now, when I say that, I realize how unpopular that is. We want good news. We want to be hopeful. Um, But um, Acts chapter 17, verse 26, says that we're here at the time that we need to be here, and I think we're here at just the right time to see the very end. Jesus truly is coming soon, and we need to be ready. So, Nacho, my opinion and your opinion aren't the same, but your opinion is worth every bit as much as mine. Here's a question from Margaret. She said, Pastor, and I feel guilty when I don't give home give to homeless people or people on the street uh, asking for money, whatever I have available. How can I navigate whether or not it's okay to give. You know, Margaret, we Christians, we like to help people. Uh, We want to give. We want to please the Lord. And this is something, frankly, that a lot of Christians struggle with. Uh, We can't help everybody. And in fact, sometimes, especially when we give out of compulsion, we give uh, because we feel guilty if we don't, there are actual times where we can get in God's way. Uh, So here's what you do. Just pray. Uh, It's not about feeling guilty. If you feel guilty, don't give. But uh, there are times when the Lord's going to put on your heart to give. And I can't tell you when that is, but I believe the Holy Spirit will bear witness. Uh, And and if you're feeling guilty, then that's probably a sign that's not the Holy Spirit. So here's what we do. You know, this is a, a problem that so many of us deal with, as I said, because we want to help. But the reality is that we can't help everyone. We just can't. And uh, I have, Margaret, uh, offered to give people jobs. Uh, we've we've offered to meet them at a restaurant and give them food. And they don't do that. They're, they're actually doing pretty well, most of them when they're out there hanging out of the freeway on-ramps or the turnarounds and stop signs. Um, and the reality is most of them really don't want to work. Uh, even if their sign says, we'll work for food, uh, they won't. And, um, you know, we got to be okay with that. So pray. Uh, you know, Paul and I, we go places and we'll, we'll look at people and there are times God will put it on my heart to buy somebody's food um, just as an opportunity to talk to them. Um, other times without ever saying anything. I just We just say to the server, bring us their check. Um, and, and, you know, it, we, we can't afford to do that all the time. So what we do is we try to be sensitive to the leading of the Spirit And that's the only way, the only way that we ought to give. Now, somebody might say, well, it's always the the Lord's um, uh, will that you would help those who are needy, those who are homeless. It isn't always God's will. 
As a church, we've tried to help a lot of the homeless people in and around our little area here in Universal City. Um, We've tried to give them um, hotel rooms, gym memberships. Uh, we've, we've told them we'd help them. They could come to church um, and gym memberships would be so they could shower. Um, um, but, but you know what? They don't want many times, most times, uh, to, to have to follow rules. They want to do what they want to do. And we've been rebuffed in our opportunities to help many, many times. So we can do what we can do. We can't do anymore. Be led by the Spirit. Here's a question I expected after last night's Iowa caucus. It's anonymous. Donald Trump has done many really bad things. How is it possible that a Christian could support a man like him? I think one of the things, anonymous, we need to remember is that um, the system of elections uh, where we're basically a two-party. I know there are other parties, but they don't really count, um, but we're basically a two-party political system. And so we have choices to make, but it's really only a choice between one party or the other. You know, we can say, well, I'll write in somebody who I think deserves to to get my vote, or or uh, I'll vote for an, a, a, an obscure candidate because I know he or she is a man of God. But, but re- in reality, we're throwing away our vote when we do that. Uh, our government... Our country is going to be governed by the candidate from either. And then I hope this changes in the future, but I don't think it will. It doesn't change in my lifetime. We're either going to have the Republican candidate or the Democrat candidate. Um, And we're going to have to cast a vote. One of those is going to be the leader or the president, in this case, with with, uh, Donald Trump. Um, and, And we've got to choose which candidate more closely embraces a platform that is consistent with um, biblical theology, biblical ideology. Um, And while Donald Trump certainly has done really, really bad things, uh, while Donald Trump is sort of the antithesis of a meek, godly man, um, you know, the truth is, economically, we need um, what we had when he was the president uh, our border situation is devastating people's lives, including many of the immigrants who are coming into this country illegally. Many, many lives are being ruined, being destroyed. Um, national security is, according to the director of the FBI, uh, who recently said it is worse than it has ever been in his lifetime. Um, uh, and, and, you know, Donald Trump, the Republican Party, uh, under Donald Trump, will fix a lot of those things. Um, He will also, the Republicans are typically more conservative um, morally, and that will be a um, sort of a a slowing down uh, the United States slide into all kinds of deviant immorality. Uh, so um, the choice between continuing to murder unborn children um, or not is very simple. Um, I realize there are Christians who vote Democrat. I do not understand how they can do that. Um, they would say, well, that's just one issue. Well, it's a pretty important issue. But also we've got our children being brainwashed 
into believing they are LGBTQ plus plus plus, um, and, and that's just a normal way of life. Uh, we got an education system that's failing our children, graduating kids that can't read or write. Um, we need to go back to common sense, and not Donald Trump specifically, but the platform that he will enact. Uh, is much closer to a biblical theology. He is not a man of great moral character. He's certainly not a born-again believer. But none of that really matters. We're electing a president, and we only have two choices. So which president more closely represents a biblical worldview that does not mean he is a Christian or she? It means only that uh, their position on issues uh, is closer to what we believe as Christians. And, and Anonymous, if we stop forgetting that uh, the reality is we are all flawed, we are all sinners, and we need to stop expecting unbelievers to act like believers, um, then we need to understand that um, the choice has to be made between one of those two candidates. I think that's sad. Certainly that is not the idealism that I was raised with. I'm a, a child of the hippies, you know, the, the hippie 60s and, and 70s. And uh, we, we hoped for better. Uh, we've never gotten better. Having said that, let me also say this. For those who are Christians out there who believe that Donald Trump is the answer to all of our problems, your kingdom is the wrong kingdom. Our country was messed up when he was the president. It's messed up now. It's going to get more messed up, according to Second Timothy chapter 3, as we get closer to the return of the Lord. So the idea that he is our Savior misses the point. The idea of Christian nationalism, uh, all we have to do is get our man in office. Um, that, that is pure folly. And we need to understand and, and pray for our president, the one that we currently have, the one that we will have after the next election, and we hope that it's the case. Personally, um, I vote conservative, um, but Donald Trump is a real lightning bolt. He's, um, he causes all kinds of visceral reactions in people. And I'm actually hoping that the next president of our country will be somebody who is a nicer person, strong in their convictions, but somebody who won't be arrogant, somebody who won't be pompous and bombastic, uh, somebody who might actually begin civil discourse so that we can sort of go back in the direction that we came from. So that's... My answer, Anonymous. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here's a question from Rich. He said, I recently got saved, but have been living with my girlfriend for several years. She's not a Christian and doesn't really want to be married. So what should I do? Rich, we're told not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now, I recognize that this relationship began when you were equally yoked. You were equally yoked in your unbelief. But now you're different. Now you're different. Very first thing is you've got to get out of that relationship right now. You've got to separate 
And by that I mean no sex, no living together. Um, a Christian can't do those things. The Bible says people who live like that, and that describes a continual willful lifestyle of rebellion against God, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now you were lost, now you're found, and so it's time for you to begin acting like you're found. And Jesus would say, follow me. Now I've had people tell me, and we come up with this all the time now. Uh, come up against this all the time. Because why well, don't I have anywhere to go? And we can't afford really to, to go anywhere else. So, no, you got to do whatever it takes. I tell men, they're the ones who are accountable. In your case, Rich, uh, you are um, the Christian. Um, if you got to sleep in a car, you sleep in a car. If that's what it takes to be obedient to the Lord. Make no mistake, Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. You need to take that step of faith. Secondly, you've got to make sure that this girl that you've been with for several years um, um, sees that Jesus has made a difference in your life. And when you tell her, we can no longer live together, I can't live like this, I've become a Christian, and there are standards, and one of them is personal holiness, and we are not living up to that standard, so I am going to move out. Imagine the impact that could make on her. It will give you the opportunity in that conversation. It'll give you the opportunity to witness to her. Tell her what God's done in your life. Tell her what's happened to you. And just say, look, I'm going to live my life in such a way that God can bless me. I'm going to live my life in a way that pleases him And this relationship, as it is, doesn't please him. And then you can kind of throw in the last little bit and say, and, and, you know, the Lord would want me to marry a Christian woman. Now, I'm assuming you're in love with this woman. You could say, "I, I, I would hope and pray that that's you. But I will not be in a relationship with a woman who is not a born again Christian. And after she gets angry, after she's frustrated, You pray for her, let the Holy Spirit work on her and just see what the Holy Spirit will do. But you show her that your new faith means something to you. You know, Rich, we have recently here at our church had a bunch of people who um, were in the same situation you were in, um, got saved, and we've been able to watch the Lord work on their heart and uh, the reality is that uh, they really haven't done um, much in the way of hanging out. So I hope that helps. They got married and doing good things. The Lord is pleased. So thank you for the question. We've got three minutes left. Let me get a question. <clears throat> Here's what I can do. Susan says, In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about women using head coverings. Why don't we observe these rules today in church? Um, Susan, uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul's not really talking about head coverings at all. What he's talking about is being under authority, and that was, we know, a cultural symbol of being under the authority of your husband. Um, we see that still in the Middle East. We see women wear head coverings. We see women covering their entire bodies, burkas, only their eyes are out uh, and visible. Uh, In a culture like that, um, that demonstrates I'm in submission to my husband under his authority, 
and it would be perfectly acceptable uh, in, in a culture like that to do that. But because what Paul is talking about is authority, he talks about um, the father is the head of Jesus, Jesus is the head of, of the church, and the husband is the head of the wife. He doesn't mean head in terms of uh, dictatorial authority, but he's talking about you're the man of God, you're the one who is responsible, and the way we do that is to respect the roles that he has given us. So we don't observe these rules today in church because that was cultural. Now, let me give you a frame of reference. Uh, in First Timothy chapter 2, Paul talks about women who are not permitted to teach or have authority over a man in the church. We would say a woman does not uh, have the right to be a pastor in the church. God is the head of the church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And those are his rules. And we want to violate those rules. And people will say, well, that's cultural as well. It isn't cultural. All the difference there is, and this is an important hermeneutic for everybody to remember, um, the reference, the justification for it goes back to Genesis. And when it goes back to Genesis, that's a precedent that's been set by the Lord himself. And um, that's why women can't be pastors in churches then or now. Um, but in 1 Corinthians 11, there's no such reference to Genesis. And we know uh, with a little bit of study, Susan, that Paul is talking about um, a cultural issue, a woman uh, being under the authority of her husband, um, in the church, and that's why the rule for head coverings was there. Well, we have got 30 minutes left in the program. We'd love your calls and questions, 340-9585, that's area code 210, or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the Word to Stand Up for Life. I'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our Tuesday show. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Here is a question from Adam. He says, Pastor Ron, why will some Christians hear Jesus say, depart from me, I never knew you? Adam, I know what you mean when you ask the question, but I want to be sure language matters. No Christian will ever hear Jesus say, depart from me, I never knew you. Remember Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Upon conversion, when we're born again, we are given the Holy Spirit as a down payment or a security deposit is probably more accurate a translation, guaranteeing our inheritance. So anybody and everybody who is born again can never hear Jesus say that because Jesus does know you. And it's very personal. Now, what Jesus was doing, he was speaking to religious leaders who were plotting his murder religious leaders who were spending their waking hours trying to figure out how to get rid of this Jesus problem. 
And and yet they believed they were real believers. I mean, they were Jews. We are descendants of Abraham. Abraham's our father. In fact, they ridiculed Jesus. You know, the 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 rumor spread throughout Jesus' entire lifetime that he was the product of a relationship between Mary and a Roman soldier. And and uh, Jesus said, "If Abraham were your father, um, uh, you'd believe in me." And they said, look, we know who our father is. The indication being, Jesus, you don't know who your father is. And so Jesus was saying to them, you will not make it into the the kingdom of heaven. Depart from me. I never knew you. I think it's interesting, Adam, that the issue in heaven isn't whether we know Jesus. Everybody knows about Jesus. But the question is, does he know us? Do we belong to him? The Lord's model for prayer begins, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. To know Jesus, we have to be able to say, Our Father. First John says, If you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father. So the idea here is very important. We must be born again. And Jesus was talking to people who, through their religious exercises, believed themselves to belong to God. We would say in a New Testament construct, we would say they believe themselves to be saved. Now, here's how it works for us, Adam. There are a lot of professing Christians who aren't born again. There's a lot of people in church. I just recently again, and I say this all the time, I personally believe that that half of the Christians sitting in church every Sunday aren't really born-again Christians. Now, I hope that's not true at Calvary Chapel San Antonio, but our church isn't different in that way from others. we got people who are living life their way. They're doing things consistently that they know God doesn't want them to do. They don't have a heart that is, is, is convicted by the Holy Spirit to change and, and frankly, the truth is they'd rather keep sinning than go to heaven. Now, what they want ideally is to do both. Oh, God understands my heart. He knows I don't mean it, but I just can't stop right now. Um, the reality is that, that God expects us to be obedient. And there's a lot of Christians, uh, professing Christians, let me properly characterize that, um, who live their own lives. They don't really think about the Lord at all. Um, they, 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 they do their dutiful things. They go to church, they give a little bit. Sometimes they even serve. But the reality is, is they're living life on their terms and real Christians simply cannot live our lives on our terms. We've got to come to him for who he is. I just did a Bible study this past Sunday, and I'm going to continue it this coming Sunday, um, Adam, um, talking about uh, Saul of Tarsus's conversion. Paul is testifying before uh, Festus and Agrippa, um, um, Agrippa the Herod uh, from in Jerusalem. And um, as he's telling the story, uh, he asks the question, Who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, I am Jesus. We have to accept him for who he is. He doesn't change. He comes to us, and he asks us to be obedient. And the professing Christian who is living a disobedient life and feels no conviction about it, has no intention of changing, that's a person who on that day of judgment, when every knee will bow and every tongue confess, on that day, Adam, that person will say, I'm here, Lord, and 
Jesus will say, I never knew you. What a horrible, horrible prospect that is for all of us. You know, that moment in time when every knee will bow and every tongue confess. For some of us who are true born-again believers, that'll be the most wonderful moment of our lives and in eternity. We acknowledge what he's done for us. We acknowledge that we've surrendered to him. But for others, Adam, it'll be the most terrifying moment of their lives because Jesus will look at you like a stranger. I love you. I, I, I died for your sins. You knew all about me. But you didn't know me. And so I don't know you. Depart from me, you doer of iniquity. And that's very sobering. I know in our church culture, we don't like to hear it. It's one of the reasons that going to a church where the word is taught and the word includes judgment as well. That's why it's so important to get the word, not stories, not feel good about yourselves. I had a question last week. Somebody said, well, is Joel Osteen okay to listen to? He's so encouraging. He's really not encouraging at all. He's leading you down a path that's going to lead to destruction. And he's going to stand before God himself and give account of why he was ashamed to tell the truth. He was given a great platform. And instead of embracing that platform and using it for God's glory, he used it to enrich himself. He used it to be popular. And even if he's deluded himself, thinking, well, I love people. I want them to feel good about themselves. That's not the way to do it. If you love people, you tell them the truth in love. So, Adam, that's why some professing Christians, not real Christians, we have our security. We will never, ever um, be told it apart. Professing Christians who aren't really Christians at all, they're the ones who ought to understand better the fear of God. Here's another anonymous question. How can I get right with God? After continually breaking promises to him, um, let me let me give you two alternatives here, uh, anonymous. First, stop making promises. You know, if you keep making promises, you keep breaking promises. Doesn't it make sense that the best thing to do is stop to make those promises? In connection with that, the next thing you ought to do is repent. The reality is, and I don't know what promise you're talking about specifically, but clearly it's dealing with sin. You got to stop it. You got to stop it. You got to learn to hate your sin. And the reality, and this is where being honest really matters, the reality is that you don't hate your sin. In fact, you love it more than you love Jesus because you continue to do it. And there's no value in pretending that we hate it. Now, I understand we hate it after we've done it. People say, no, you don't understand. I do hate it. I'm so desperate to stop. I'm disgusted with myself. But here's the reality. Jesus says, how about being disgusted with yourself before you commit the sin? How about hating it before you give in to it? And our Bible is full of promises, Anonymous, that we do not have to be controlled by sin ever again. Get in the Word. Go before the Lord in genuine repentance. Be broken, and I mean literally be broken. And you know what the best thing about it is? If you really get to that place and you cry out to the Lord for help, you're completely and irrevocably forgiven. 
But it has to be a work that God does in your heart. Please do. Here's a question from Lisa. Uh, Pastor, do you consider Calvinism heresy? Especially the doctrine of limited atonement. Lisa, it is not heresy. I'm certainly not a Calvinist, and the doctrine of limited atonement is the most offensive doctrine in Calvinism. Uh, the idea that Jesus only died for the elect. He didn't die for the sins of the world when the Bible clearly and repeatedly says otherwise uh, is offensive as a doctrine. But it is not heresy. The Calvinist does not diminish the character or the nature of God. Um, that That's really what defines heresy. Um, we have a lot of Calvinist brothers and sisters. They're Wrong. They're sincerely wrong, but they're wrong. Um, but it is not heresy. And Lisa, like you, the doctrine of limited atonement is not only offensive, I think it is uh, anathema to the Lord. I mean, you've got to make a choice at some point. Are you going to believe what it says, or are you going to let somebody else tell you it doesn't mean what it says? Here's what it really means, and that's really the only way that you can come up with the idea that limited atonement has any value whatsoever. So, no, it's not heresy. Um, again, I really, really hate the doctrine, um, Reformed theology, Calvinistic theology, uh, but it is not heresy. And there's a lot of Calvinists that are serving the kingdom of God. They're just wrong in that area. Here's another anonymous question. Do you think it is ever okay to lie in ministry, maybe to make doing the ministry easier? Um Anonymous, I've said this a bunch of times on this show. It's never okay to lie. We try to justify it and rationalize lying. And in this particular case, at least you're honest saying, well, I can do it'll make doing ministry easier. But it is never okay to lie. Jesus said that the devil's native language is lying. And we don't want to take after him. We want to be like Jesus. And you can't do that. And lie. If you're in the presence of the Lord, when you lie, you will be so convicted. Uh, I'm sharing uh, anonymous bits and pieces of my testimony during our Sunday study through the book of Acts. And I'm doing it because Paul is giving his testimony, and we talk about the power in our personal testimony. I'm also going to give my testimony at the the last study I do in the book of Acts rather than a Bible study. It's going to be me sharing my testimony. The Lord wants me to do that. But I've been sharing bits and pieces of it. Um, um, and, and I just said this past week or maybe the week before that um, before I got saved, I, I did nothing but lie. I said I had a foul mouth. Um, I used horrible language. It was just part of my everyday life. Um, I, I lied all the time. Um, when I got saved, I immediately knew that those things were wrong. Uh, I, I shared yesterday, that, or not yesterday, but Sunday, that um, I've only cussed one time in 33 years. It would be 33 years in February I've been saved. I've only cussed one time, and it just took me to my knees. It broke me. And it wasn't something I thought about. It just came out in a conversation with another Bible student who's now a pastor. And uh, I was I was devastated. And, and I, I just said, Lord, I don't ever want to embarrass you like that again. That's how much it hurt. 
But you see, that's how radical our transformation in Christ ought to be. And with this idea of lying, Anonymous, um, when you tell a lie, it, 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 it ought to crush your spirit. The reality is when we lie, we lie because it makes us feel better or because it makes our life easier. And Jesus hates it when we lie. So what we got to do is decide that lying is simply not something that we can ever do. There's never an excuse for lying. Not even the lies that so many Christians think are, are, are well, they're, they're just victimless lies. Uh, I can tell my child there's a Santa Claus. I can, no, you just, you got to be truth tellers of Jesus. And we're to imitate Christ. Of Jesus, he said in Colossians, he is a not lying God. Can you imagine if Jesus ever told a white lie? If Jesus ever lied to you because he didn't want to hurt your feelings, that wouldn't be very loving. And our responsibility, Anonymous, is to be just like Jesus. If you're in his presence, hanging out with Jesus, you won't lie. Here is a question. This one is from, or it's a request from Reuben. He said, uh, would you all... (laughs) I can hear Reuben's voice. Would you all pray for me? Uh, my chest has been hurting and it's hard to breathe. I'm worried it might be something bigger. Reuben, let me pray for you now. Lord, um, we all know what it's like to have these chest pains and immediately all the lies the enemy tells us, um, the possible reality. we got the heart issues. We know these are terror-inducing moments. So we ask you to take our brother, our dear friend Reuben, In your arms, wrap your arms around him, Lord, and tell him what you told us over and over and over in the Bible. Do not worry or do not be afraid. And I pray, Father, that the peace of God would come over Reuben at this very moment. I also pray, Lord, if there's any physical issue, real physical issue, that you would touch him, you would make all things right, And then open your arms and invite him to follow you even more closely now than he has before. So, Reuben, I will keep praying for you. Would you please check in with us and let us know how you're doing? 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here's a question from Rhonda. She said, Pastor, why do you think Judas turned away from following Jesus? What steps did it follow? And I guess by it, you mean his betrayal of the Lord. Um, Rhonda, I think Jesus makes it clear that Judas never really followed Jesus. Now, he was with him and traveled with him, but Jesus said he was the son of perdition from the beginning, doomed to destruction from the beginning. There was no doubt he was never really what we would categorize as a true convert. So why do I think he turned away? I think Judas was using Jesus to get ahead. I think Judas was hoping that Jesus would make him important, uh, that, that, that following Jesus would be a means to enrichment. We know that he was a thief. He was stealing from the money bag, so we know what his motives were. And while it looked like he was one of the other 11, just all things equal, in fact, to the others, it, it appeared as though maybe he was the the most favored. I mean, he, he had the responsibility of being the treasure. It appeared that Jesus spent a lot of time with Judas. Um, and, and when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, the other 11 didn't say, we knew it was Judas. 
Um, so he just never really belonged to him. And we, we've got to understand, he was a disciple. He's described as a disciple. That does not mean a believer. It just means a student or a follower. But his heart, his motives, his his mind was always for Judas. When he said, I had an old friend in Bible college, and when uh, the disciples were indignant, and that, by the way, was stirred up by, by Judas because of uh, Mary Bethany, uh, pouring all the perfume, preparing Jesus' body for burial. Um, Judas said, why this waste? This could have been given to the poor. And my friend used to say, yeah, poor Judas. Judas was like a lot of us. He was hoping Jesus was a means to an end. And when he was disappointed, he had no choice, at least in his mind, his way of thinking, he had no choice whatsoever but to betray him. And I, I personally believe that this is the insanity of sin, Jesus had been very clear about what was going to happen. But I think Judas believed that if he betrayed him and the Roman soldiers came to get him, that Jesus would be forced then to take over the kingdom. And he didn't realize that Jesus had one purpose in life, and that was to die. He simply couldn't stomach that. So that's why he turned away. He turned away. He never really was a believer. I'm sure there were many times he was excited and emotional and thrilled to see the power of God. But he wanted that power for himself, not for the glory of God. Rhonda, the thing that scares me the most about your question is that there are just a lot of people going to churches who are teaching what I call Judas doctrine. That Jesus is a means to an end. If you believe, he'll make you rich. If you believe, that, then he, he won't he let you get sick. All of those things. Um, we're following the Lord. we got to do it for him and for him alone. So, Rhonda, thank you for the question. Freddie says, are oneness people believers if they don't believe in the Trinity? Freddie, there's a lot of... Um, News in the ground in the in the in the media about this right now. Um, you know, TD Jakes is is um, sort of in trouble uh, because of um, some accusations. I don't know whether they're true or not about some immorality, some behavior. Uh, it's been pretty much all over Christian media. Um, um, and and no oneness people are not believers if they reject the doctrine of the Trinity. Now. Um, I know a lot of people that don't understand the doctrine of the Trinity. But that's different. Not understanding it is different than rejecting it. When the truth is made known that there's one God manifest in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not three gods, one God. And when we look at the Bible and reject that doctrine, we do so of our own free will, then we're rejecting the very character and nature of, of our triune God. So uh, the, the, a oneness person who knows what they believe. Now, like in every church, there's a lot of people who don't really know what they believe. Now, they'll talk about Jesus a lot. They'll talk about the Holy Spirit and the power. But the reality is um, they're not um, believers in a triune God. And if that's the case, they do not have a God that saves. So, Freddie, be very careful if you're going to oneness church or you know people that you care about and are praying for who go to oneness church, um, that is not a good place or a safe place for them to be. God knows their heart. We don't. Um, but unfortunately, um, they need the Jesus of the Bible. 
And we've got proof repeatedly that there's one God manifest in three persons. I know I say this a lot, but I always think of it, you know, people say, well, one plus one is plus one is three. And I always answer, yeah, but one times one times one is one. And that's really a better picture of the Trinity. But Jesus' only people, oneness, Pentecostals, uh, if they reject, and, and, and in some case for those in leadership, promote a doctrine that is heretical, then no, they're not real believers. Their God is not sufficient to save. Okay, this might be the last one of the day. This half hour went pretty quick. Kelly says, if people don't believe that Jesus is God, but believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, will God judge them and send them to hell? Um, Only God can forgive sins. So if they don't believe that Jesus is God, then they can't believe in Jesus as the one who forgives their sins. So if you have a Jesus, for instance, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons do not believe that Jesus Christ is God. There's a lot of other people who don't believe that Jesus is God, and yet, yeah, Jesus died for my sins. Well, only God can forgive sins, so if Jesus is not God, he cannot forgive sins, and they're lost, and they will be judged, not because God delights in judging them. I think one of the things we have to remember always is that judgment is something God hates. Judgment is a strange work for God. Isaiah 28 says that very clearly. Um, in the book of Revelation, during the great tribulation and the judgments being poured out, there's silence in heaven for half an hour. That's a time of mourning, God turning away because he can't bear to see people judge. That's not what he wants to do. Jesus said, I didn't come to judge the world, but that through me the world would be saved. But it has to be Jesus Christ of the Bible who is God. It has to be Jesus who said, let there be light and there was. And anything short of that, Kelly, again, renders us with a God that is incapable of selling because he's not God, or saving rather, because he's not God at all. So we have to have the Bible, the biblical Jesus. He has to be God, God the Son, also the Son of God, because that's the only way the forgiveness of sins has been transmitted. So yes, God will judge them, um, and, and he won't send them to hell. That'll just be the consequence of not believing. Kelly, thank you for the question. Hey, thank you for tuning in. Lord bless you and keep you. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. You've been listening to the Word to Stand Up for Life. God bless you. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4 And Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.